Sketches from Scripture presents Wandering Wisdom from the Wilderness A teaching series from the stories of the Torah Wandering is a teaching series by me, author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. In this podcast, we'll be continuing our exploration of the narrative structure and style of the books of the Torah, focusing primarily on the book of Numbers. This study will give us context for a better understanding of Scripture. It will help us trust more in these Scriptures by demystifying them. Taking the stories from the perceived realm of mythology or spiritual mysticism or religious fairy tale and putting them on the ground where they belong. Real words written by real people about real events and real places, all pointing us to a very real God. I hope this podcast reminds you that even in times of wilderness wandering, the Creator of heaven and earth is with you. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with others. In this episode, I reference some images. If you'd like to see those images, you can go to skidmore.substack.com, find the post for this particular episode, and the images will be in the body of that post. You can also share this episode by sharing that page with others. So we're looking at the time of the wandering, and this is mostly in the book of Numbers, but we're also going to be continuing the book of Exodus, which is um, where we started last night. So we're going to do a little bit of Exodus, just a very little bit in Leviticus, I promise, just a very little bit in Leviticus. And then we will get into Numbers, which is where we sort of have the story proper. And we're really going to look at that time period of the wandering, the 40 years that um, the Israelite people, uh, 40 years that the Israelite people were wandering in the wilderness as a punishment, as a discipline, but they were doing it with their God, visible to them, geographically with them. And so we're going to look at what it's like to go through tough times, but knowing that God is with us. So there's going to be some difficult passages to go through. There's going to be some really wonderful things to look at. We talked last night about the woes and the wonders. Our whole study of Genesis was sort of searching for, is there anything that makes sense of the peril and the promise of human existence, of the woes and the wonders of human existence? And we see that the idea of forgiveness, that the story of God's family, that God wants relationship with us and wants us to have a unified relationship with each other, that that starts to provide some kind of answer towards this peril and promise. And we see more of the woes and wonders as we go into the wandering period. So uh, before we get to this, let's uh, very quickly just kind of uh, talk about what we were talking about last night, just as a very quick review. Last night in part one, we were talking about the uh, municipality of Avaris. This is an artist rendering. It's clearly a crude 3D model. But we're talking about Avaris and the Canaanite compound that was found there. So um, you've got this archaeologically discovered municipality. It's under the city of Ramses, which means that it's older than the series of, than the uh, city of Ramses. It, um, it uh, was occupied from about 1783 to 1550 BC. 
1783 to 1550 BC. Um, and in this uh, area, we found a Canaanite Semitic compound that had a graveyard, a burial area. One of the tombs in this area had a pyramid attached to it, indicating that that person was of some note with the um, Egyptian royalty. Inside the tomb, there was a two times larger than life seated statue of a not very Egyptian looking person. In fact, he looked Syrian or Jewish or Canaanite, uh, red mushroom hairstyle, yellow skin, and a coat that appeared to have many colors. He was also holding a flail, which indicates that he held some sort of position in royalty, was important to the Pharaoh in some way, and there was no mummy in this tomb. There were no bones. And so we postulated that this could be Joseph's tomb. Now, we can't prove that, of course, um, but it certainly makes good sense. Here's the fragments there of the Joseph statue with, of course, an artist rendering down in the bottom right corner that we looked at last night. So we can't say for sure that this is the tomb of Joseph or that the city of Avaris was the uh, place where the, the, the Jews lived and thrived. But we do know Semitic people lived there during this time. And here's a guy has a lot of things pointing to him that makes him look an awful lot like the biblical Joseph. Now, as I said a minute ago, Avaris was occupied from about 1783 to 1550 BC. Now, you don't need to know dates. There's not going to be a test or a quiz or anything like that, but we are going to be doing some things sort of involving time a little bit. It's not so much that you keep up with the time as you kind of keep up with sort of the order of things going on. And I'm going to be throwing a lot of Egyptian names at you. If you want to just sit back and listen, great. If you want to just sort of uh, write down these names so you can kind of keep track of the series, you can do that as well. If you want to just listen, that'll be okay. I'm going to try and sum it up as best I can. There's a lot of information to be pulled from a lot of different places. And again, this is this is more of a class. You know, this is not like a sermon series, right? So you're getting some information right here at the very beginning, the first couple of parts of this class, because they're going to set the scene. Remember, Act 1 is all about the setting. It's all about setting everything up. All the characters, the, the setting, the time period, all that stuff, right? So that's what we're doing. That's what Exodus is doing in the story of Moses. So <clears throat> Avaris, this little town we were just talking about, was occupied from about 1783 to 1550 BC. So it was built, obviously, towards the beginning of that. People were living in the area uh, before that. Then it was destroyed in 1550 by Ahmos I. Now, Ahmos I, he was the first pharaoh of the 18th dynasty. His name means born of Ea. So uh, Amos one, another way his name is sometimes brought forward is Amosus one. And that Ah is referring to the deity that he's named after, Ea. And the end, the Mos or the Moses, that means born of or son of or um, has been born, something like that in Egyptian. So uh, you have Amos one, and that just means born of Yah. And he he's uh, almost the first, because there are other ones that have that same name. He's the first pharaoh of the 18th dynasty, and he threw out the Hyksos. So without going into a bunch of Egyptian history that I barely know the surface of, you had a bunch of Egyptians, and then you had these Hyksos people that came in that appeared to be uh, very Greek-influenced. And so a big 
characteristic of the Hyksos period was this these Minoan style paintings. The Minoans were um, sea peoples. They were Greek-ish. And, and so a lot of their artwork, the Minoan artwork, looks very similar to ancient Greek artwork, has a lot of um, similarities. I'm, I'm giving a real high level, very uh, glossed view of it. But ma mainly to say they were from somewhere else. They were not sort of native Egyptian people. They came in and kind of integrated within Egypt and um, ruled for some time. Well, when uh, Moses I comes along, he throws out the Hyksos, takes over as Pharaoh, and really kind of gets rid of anybody that's not Egyptian. Um, he begins massive construction projects around this time. So he destroys Avaris in 1550 and begins massive construction projects of other types uh, and throws out Hyksos rejects the foreigners. Now, his son was Amenhotep, and Amenhotep continued the building projects of his father. Amenhotep had no living heirs, so the dynasty passed on to Tutmos I, or Tutmosis I. Tutmos, uh, his name just means son of Thoth, so Thothmos or Thothmosis, uh, depending on if you're looking at the Greek version or you know, however it's translated. Now, he's not related to... Amos one or Amenhotep. Uh, it doesn't appear that he's related, but he is the uh, he's married. His wife is Queen Amos, and so she appears to be related to Amos one. Uh, whether it was a daughter or a half sister or a sister of his wife, and no one's really sure where she came from. But because of how she's referred to as Queen Amos, she appears to have a connection. So it's still even though Tutmos one is not. Uh, does not appear to be family connected to Amos and Amenhotep. He uh, still appears to be sort of family connected through marriage. So Tutmos the first, Tutmos one, he takes over as the pharaoh, and with his other wife. So he had two wives. He had Queen Amos, but then he had another wife, and with her he had a daughter named Hatshepsut. Okay, and Hatshepsut is a well-known queen of Egypt, probably one of the uh, best known queens of Egypt, except for maybe Nefertiti. So Hatshepsut was a very popular, well-liked uh, queen and enjoyed reign for quite some time. And after the I passed away um, with his, um, I'm sorry, he, he had Hatshepsut with Queen Amos. With his other wife, he had a son named Tutmos II. So you've got Tutmos I, with married to Queen Amos, and he has they have Hatshepsut with his other wife. He has a son named Tutmos II. Tutmos II has a son named, you guessed it, Tutmos III. And Tutmos III, and he's got this uh, kind of stepmother uh, in Hatshepsut, and they reign together as co-regents. Now, this seems very odd to us, but it was done a number of times in Egyptian history where you had uh, two uh two people reigning, particularly if it was a male and female, or perhaps it was a brother and sister. It's very common for half-brothers and half-sisters to marry each other in the Egyptian royalty. It was not uh, considered bizarre at all. They were, uh, it was royalty. So uh, Hepshutzot is kind of his stepmother, and Tutmosis II is this uh, young man. I'm sorry, Tutmos III is this young man. He's co-reigning with his stepmother, Hepshutzot. 
Now, Tutmosis III, Tutmos, Tutmos III, Tutmosis III, was one of the most well-known and notorious Egyptian pharaohs in all of Egyptian history. And that had to do with the fact that he went on many military campaigns, uh, beginning, I think, at about age 21 for about 50 years. He waged 17 or more huge campaigns in the area, down into Nubia and all up into the area of the Philistines and Canaanite area, out into Arabia. He went all over the place, conquering people, weakening uh, the armies around him, conquering land. He was um, probably maybe more than any other Egyptian pharaoh in terms of um, just the military conquests that he went on. And as I said, he reigned together peacefully with Hatshepsut. There's no sign that there was ever any negativity between them. So it's very bizarre that years after she died, I believe it was 10 or 12 years after she died, the III suddenly goes on a brutal campaign of defacing and destroying every statue and hieroglyphic reference depiction of Hatshepsut in the entire Egyptian nation. So we, we don't have, I don't think there's any intact statues or um, art of Hatshepsut still intact because Tutmosis III went on a campaign defacing it all, destroying it all. Why did he do this a decade or more after she died, especially when they never appeared to have any negativity between them during the time of their co-reign? Now, it could just be that he wanted his legacy to be about him and not about him and his stepmother, and so he just sort of erase her to say, that's just me. That could be a reason. I don't find it particularly compelling, but I do try to give you all the information and, and try to be fair about some of the things that I've studied. But the fact is, years after she died, he went on this campaign to essentially erase her from existence in the Egyptian nation. Uh, like I said, Tutmosis III waged war all around, conquered peoples and lands uh, in Egypt, along the Mediterranean, up into Canaan against the Philistines, the Canaanite tribes. Some, somewhere around 1446 BC, somewhere in the in the mid 1400s BC, all of his campaigns stopped, and no one has definitive answers as to why. Now, if I do my math correctly, I think he would have been about 71 at this time, so it could be he was just old, but he lived for some time after this. So, uh, and again, like I say, he he goes on this uh, campaign of destroying Hatshepsut's. Uh, uh, existence after this. And so he lived for some time after this. So there's no real answer. Why did he suddenly stop all these campaigns, especially when he was being so successful and had such a strong military, such a strong army? So that is a little bit of the Egyptian pharaoh history. You've got Amos one who comes in at the beginning of the 18th dynasty, throws out the Hyksos begins massive construction projects. His son, Amenhotep, continues those construction projects. The reign is taken over by Tutmos I, and uh, he has a daughter named Hatshepsut. He has a grandson named Tutmosis III. The two of them co-reign together peacefully. Hatshepsut dies. Years after she dies, Tutmos III suddenly stops doing all of his campaigns and destroys all the existence of Hatshepsut. Notice I've not mentioned the Bible at all during any of this. This is all information that you can find out just by doing general study, looking into the history of Egypt. Okay, now let's look at some of the biblical dating and then kind of line it up with some of the history. So if you look at some of the, uh, go back with the dating of the prophets and use some biblically conservative dating, some academic scholars will date things much later. Most academic scholars are a, a little more um, 
liberal with their dating of the Exodus and put it somewhere around 1250, 1280, somewhere around there. But a biblical, uh, conservatively biblical dating of the Exodus will put it somewhere around 1446 BC. So if you look at what all's going on in 1446 BC, this is right around the time Tutmosis III stops all of his military campaigns and goes on this rampage of destroying Hapshetsut's image throughout Egypt. So lined up with the events of the Old Testament, this might be what happened. I cannot just say, I cannot say that this is definitively what happened, but it's what makes the most sense to me looking at history, looking at the timing, and looking at what we see in the book of Exodus in Scripture. You have Amos one who comes in, throws out the Hyksos, who had been there for a couple of centuries, and here now you have a Pharaoh who knows not Joseph. In fact, he dislikes foreigners so much, it would make sense that he would destroy Avaris and reject foreigners. The Hyksos he sends packing, and the Israelites there are a great number. He makes them slaves for his massive building projects. His son comes along, continues those building projects, and weighs down a heavier upon the Egyptian people. The Egyptian people cry out to God. Now, later you have um, uh, Moses is born, and of course, we, uh, we'll come back to what happened to him. So much later, you have Tutmosis III, who abruptly halted his military campaigns, which he'd have to abruptly halt his military campaigns if the best and most of his military and his horses and his chariots are all at the bottom of the Reed Sea. He could not go on any campaigns after that. And then years after Hatshepsut's death, he goes on this campaign to erase her existence. Well, why would he do why would he do that? Did he blame her for losing his grand military? Remember, he's the pharaoh with the greatest military might probably of any pharaoh in Egyptian history. And suddenly it all stops. Does he blame Hatshepsut? And if he does, why? So uh, keep in mind, scripture does not tell us that Pharaoh drowned in the in the Reed Sea, it just says he was defeated at the Reed Sea. Okay. So uh, scripture allows Pharaoh to continue living after the moments that we're about to read of the story of the Exodus. So does he blame Hatshepsut for losing his military? So you have Hatshepsut. She is, guess what? A Pharaoh's daughter. Did she pull a young boy from the water and raise him as a son? And what might she have called this little boy that she found in the water? Might she have called him a son of, or born of, or has been born, might she have called him Moses. So I can't tell you that that's what happened, but it sure looks reasonable. So now let's look at the Exodus itself, and let's look at some of the geography. One reason I'm going into this level of detail, as I said last night, many people will say, ah, there's, this is one of the biggest uh, legs you can pull out of the, uh, you know, from supporting the the idea that there was uh, an exodus. There's no evidence for it whatsoever. And I hope that I'm showing you that that is just nonsense. That is just not correct. You've got archaeological evidence of Semitic people at the time that the exodus says that they're there. You've got all this evidence of what's going on in Egypt and in the Egyptian royalty that lines up perfectly with what exodus is telling us. It's definitely showing that it's possible. And in fact, even if the evidence is circumstantial, there is so much of it, it, for me, goes from being possible into probable. So let's continue now looking at also the geography that we read about in Exodus. So let's go to Exodus 13, 17. Read a little bit, and I've got a map here, and we'll look at that as well. 
So I'm in Exodus chapter 13, reading in verse 17, excuse me, if you want to read along. Exodus 17, 13. I'm sorry, Exodus 13, 17. Exodus 13, 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them along the road to the land of the Philistines, even though it was nearby. Okay, so let's go right into the map right away, straight away. Let me get my camera up here so I can make sure that I'm showing you something that you can see. Okay. So... This is the Sinai, what we call the Sinai Peninsula, this little triangle right here. We call it the Sinai Peninsula because the uh, believed place of Mount Sinai is right down here at the tip. This, this largest mountain is down here near the tip. And so we call that um, Mount Sinai. And because of that, this is known as the Sinai Peninsula. It was not known as that during the time of the Egyptians of, of Exodus, it's known that much later in uh, pre-Christ period, after we started calling this, uh, saying, well, this is where Sinai is. But we call this the Sinai Peninsula. It is part of Egypt. It was part of Egypt during the time of Moses. Over here is the modern-day nation of Saudi Arabia, the modern-day nation of Jordan, and the modern-day nation of Israel and Palestine. Uh, okay, and all this is Egypt here. This is Cairo. You can see that label there is Cairo. I'll stop tapping the map. Cairo, the green coming up through here, of course, is the Nile River. Everything is fertile around the Nile. And here, the uh, where it fans out, this is the marshy delta, the fertile delta of the Nile, the Nile Plain. And you see this is a topographical map. So anything that is sort of light in color is uh, flat and smooth. Anything that is just darker in color, these are mountains, and this is higher. This is, of course, what we call the Red Sea, also known as the Reed Sea, named so for the papyrus that would grow along uh, the fertile areas along the uh, coast, particularly um, up around um, where you see all the grain. Okay, so the first thing was that Scripture says is, uh, I'm, God says, I'm not going to lead them along the road to the land of the Philistines. Well, we know the Philistines are sort of just southwest of Israel here. They're a, a sea people. They're sort of in this coastal area. So right around in here on the eastern side of the fertile area, that's where Avaris was. That's where Ramses was, the city of Ramses. So the road to the Philistines would have gone along this way. God says, I'm not taking them that way because they'll, um, uh, let's keep reading. Even though it's nearby, for God said, the people will change their minds and return to Egypt if they face war. He didn't want them to get into war with the Philistine people up here in this area. So he led the people around toward the Red Sea along the road of the wilderness. And the Israelites left the land of Egypt in battle formation. So if you're like me, you've probably been taught that they came around down here somewhere, they crossed over the Red Sea somewhere here and ended up down around here. And this is Mount Sinai. And later they come over and they cross the Jordan into the promised land. None of that really makes a lot of sense when you look at the scripture, unfortunately, even though that's what so many of us have been taught. It's still the prevailing thought. What I'm about to share with you might could be wrong, but it just makes so much more sense than than the, than the way that we're all taught. So I'll leave you to figure out what you think about it. But it doesn't make much sense to me that we'll come down here and this will be Mount Sinai. Then we'll go back here and we'll wander around here and we'll go all the way into Moab to come back across the Jordan. 
that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Let me show you what I think happened based on the text that we're looking at. And then you can draw your own conclusions. Okay. But again, the point of this is the scripture is talking about real places that existed, real places that exist geographically. And so that's what we're going to take a look at. So now we're in chapter 13 and verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. Remember, there are no bones found in the tomb at Avaris. Because Joseph had made the Israelites swear a solemn oath, saying, God will certainly come to your aid, and then you must take my bones with you from this place. They set out from Succoth and camped at Etham. Succoth just means uh, tents, I believe. And so um, who knows where that was? There's a place where they were camping. And it says, and they camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. Okay, Etham means wall. So we're looking here at the map. And my contention is you've got about two or three million people. Why are you going to go farther down into Egypt? That doesn't make any sense. They don't have any idea the Red Sea is going to part from them. This would just be going deeper into Egypt. To get away, they would got to go this way in some kind of way. And God says, I'm not going to lead them by the way of the Philistines. So I think they come down through here, through this wilderness. And you'll notice, and I'm going to zoom in on this area right here, okay? You'll notice that this is all flat. This is all nice and flat and easy to travel. You'll also notice, we'll read in a verse in a minute, where it says they traveled day and night. They never stopped. So there are some miraculous things happening here. In the same way that during the 40 years of wandering that we're going to read in later lessons, their shoes never wear out, you know, their sandals never wear out, their cloaks never wear out. That's a miraculous thing that happens. The manna showing up, that's a miraculous thing that happens. Traveling day and night would have to be a miraculous thing to happen. You've got elderly people, you've got children, you've got families, you've got livestock, and no one is stopping. They're traveling day and night, and they are led by this pillar this uh, it was referred to as the angel of God in one in one place. Basically, it's the messenger, the angel of God that is um, leading them along the way. So God, instead of leading them uh, uh, along the road of the Philistines, is leading them through the wilderness. And it says they're going to camp at Etham. Now, Etham means wall. So if you were to travel around here and go around the tip, you'll notice the topography here. This is all mountainous. And you notice how the mountains go right up to the water on this side. In fact, if I understand correctly, there's a path right along this ridge that's about one or two people deep. And I believe even the third traveled one or two people at a time, took his army up through there, um, took his army up through there to surprise, come up around behind uh, an army from the north, probably a Canaanite or Philistine army, I don't remember which. So you can see how that would be a wall. This the Gulf of Aqaba here was created. There is a fault line that runs right through here. The same fault line that created the Sea of Galilee, that creates the Jordan River, that creates the Dead Sea. It's that same fault line that creates the Gulf of Aqaba. And so you see it's just a mountain. In fact, everything down under here, there's lots of coral and things like that that grow there because it is warmed from up underneath because of the, the, you know, the magma being close to the surface and that fault line. So you have a wall right here. So he says, camp at Etham. Well, here's a wall. Show me in the rest of this topography, where is there a wall? Where is there a wall out here in this mostly flat wilderness? Where is there a wall down here in the flat area along um, Egypt? I don't see it, but I see a, a big one right here. Now let's keep reading. Uh, so they set out from Succoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day and a pillar of fire to give them light at night so that they could travel day or night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never left its place in front of the people. 
Then the Lord spoke to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of Pi-Hiroth between Migdal and the sea. Well, where is Pi-Hiroth? We don't know. But the name means mouth of the water or mouth of the canal or mouth of the gorges. So again, going back here, where is the mouth of the gorges? Probably somewhere down in here where these gorges open up. That would be what I would guess. We don't know where Pi-Hiroth was, but it doesn't make sense that it would be along the shore somewhere. It's not the mouth, right? So Pi-Hiroth, very likely somewhere down around here, around the mouth of these gorges, particularly right here where you've got these high walls on either side of the Gulf of Aqaba. Uh, turn back and camp in front of Pi-Hiroth between Migdal and the sea. Well, where's Migdal? Well, there's a little bit of a problem there because Migdal just means tower. So there's lots of towns called Migdal. In fact, one that you're probably familiar with and don't even realize is near the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee, Lake Gennesaret, right on the um, southwestern corner, basically, of the Sea of Galilee, up under a tall mountain named Mount Arbel, is a town called Magdala. And it just means tower. That's what it means. And it's probably referring to the mountain that's right over its shoulder, the big mountain towering over it. You know of this town because you know of someone from this town. Her name is Mary of Magdala. She's Mary the Magdalene, Mary Magdalene. That's what that name means. She's Mary from Magdala. Magdala, Migdal just means tower. That's all that means. So when it says camp in front of Pihiroth between Migdal and the sea, it just means between the place called tower and the sea. Now, again, if you're a naval strategist and you're wanting to protect the Egyptian um, world from naval attack, where are you going to put a tower? Are you going to put it way inland up here? It's going to be a bit late uh, if you see it up there. But if you put a tower down here on, again, we call this Mount Sinai down here because it's the tallest mountain on the peninsula. If you put a tower on the tallest mountain down here, you'll be able to see both gulfs, all the Red Sea, a lot of the surrounding area. It's a great place to have a watchtower. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe they had carrier pigeon technology this time. So if they were to see something, they could put a message on carrier pigeon and it would fly back and Pharaoh could bring his army down to deal with um, whatever the attacking army was. So we'll continue reading. Uh, Between Migdal and the sea, you must camp in front of Baal Zephon facing it by the sea. What is Baal Zephon? We don't know, but what it means is God of the North or Lord of the North. So that's probably, and of course, Baal, you recognize that as referring to the Canaanite gods. Uh, Baal is, um, when it's like not a capital B, just means husband. And so um, the Canaanites sort of saw the, the, the male God as the husband and their female God as, as the wife or the mother. And so all that just means is uh, Canaanite God of the North. So again, if you're a Canaanite coming by boat, where are you going to put God of the North? Where are you going to put sort of the, uh, it's almost like a, a lighthouse. Oh, there it is. There's the big tall mountain. Uh, coming into where we know we're almost home. When we see that, we know we're getting close to home. Again, I don't know that that's where uh, Baal Zephon was, but certainly very reasonable that it would be there, much more reasonable than for it to be anywhere up over here, especially since it's a Canaanite god, not an Egyptian god. So they camp at Etham, going back to our detail here. They camp at Etham, they're up against the wall. Then they turn back, and camp in front of Pi-Hiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon, facing it by the sea. So again, you can see there's like a little flat spot here. That might be a nice place to camp, having turned back from Etham and in front of these tall mountains. 
Going on, chapter 14, verse 3. Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, they are wandering around the land in confusion. The wilderness has boxed them in. Okay, well, if they're right here, you can see how the wilderness has boxed them in. They've got water on this side, mountains on this side, the wall up here to the north, and only one way out down here, which the Egyptians are about to enter through. Of course, now they're boxed in. Going back to the larger map, show me how they're boxed in out here in this big flat desert. They're not boxed in anywhere. Here, they're boxed in against the wall in front of these towering signals, towers um, for the, uh, the naval sailors of the time. Uh, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. Then I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. Continuing on, verse five. When the king of Egypt was told the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their mind about the people and said, what have we done? We have released Israel from serving us. So he got his chariot ready and he took his troops with him. He took 600 of the best chariots and all the rest of the chariots in Egypt with officers in each one, his entire army. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued uh, the Israelites who were going out defiantly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his horsemen and his army, chased after them and caught up with them as they camped by the sea at Pihiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians coming after them. Okay, so again, if they're out here in sort of a flat area, they're going to see them coming from a long way away. If they're down here where they're in a tight space and they're sort of seeing them come around the mountain, they're going to look up and all of a sudden they're there. Right? The Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians coming after them. The Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord for help. They said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Not even out of Egypt yet, already complaining, already wanting to go back. But Moses said to the people, don't be afraid, stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you must be quiet. <laughs> the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp. As for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it so the Israelites could go through the sea on dry ground. So one other thing that I'm going to show you about this area here, when you're looking, uh, obviously the blue stuff is the water. And <clears throat> what you have is, you see there's some darker areas here, is trying to give you an idea of the topography of the land under the water. Right, so you've been to the beach, right? You know that there's the ground comes down, slopes down into the water, and continues sloping under the water. And then at some point, way out, it drops off and gets deep. Some places very deep. You'll notice here there's these islands here. Well, they're not just floating on the water out there, right? They're attached to the floor. And so all of this land right here, and I'll show you on this inset so you can see a little better. See how dark blue this is right here? The darker the blue, the higher the land under the water. All right. Again, let me just check and make sure that you can see what I'm showing you. Great. So what you have here are these little islands out here. They're part of a land bar that is mostly underwater. And the, at this deepest place, it's about 200 meters underwater. So it's significantly underwater, but nowhere near the depth of a lot of the other uh, places that are underwater here. For instance, just to the south of this here is like 1,500 meters 
underwater. That's a, that's a long way down. You could take the tallest building in Canada and completely submerge it in water uh, easily um, uh, down under here. Very, very deep water just to the south of this. So let's continue reading about the Exodus and see what happens here. Uh, <clears throat> so they're going to divide the water. This is the first the Israelites are hearing of this, by the way. So they haven't known any of this to this point. They're going to divide the water so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. As for uh, This is the Lord speaking. As for me, I'm going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. I will receive my glory by means of Pharaoh, all his army and his chariots and horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I'm the Lord when I receive glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going in front of the Israelite forces, moved and went behind them. So if they're all camped out here, and it's the pillar has been leading them. When it turns back to lead them back this way, now it's behind them. See that? So as it leads them back from Ethan, back from the wall, now the pillar would be in between the Israelites and the Egyptians. And now the Egyptian, now the Israelites are moving this way with the pillar behind it. This all just makes sense if you just look at them out, right? Um, then Moses stretched his hand out over the sea. The Lord drove, I mean, verse 21, the Lord drove the sea back with a powerful east wind all that night. So here comes the east wind going this way, pushing the water away from this land bridge and setting up the walls of water on either side um, and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians set out in pursuit, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Notice it doesn't say Pharaoh, just his army and went into the sea after them. During the morning watch, the Lord looked down at the Egyptian forces from the pillar of fire and cloud and threw the Egyptian forces into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and made them drive with difficulty. Let's get away from Israel, the Egyptians said, because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea returned to its normal depth. While the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord threw them into the sea. The water came back and covered the chariots and horsemen, plus the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. Not even one of them survived. So again, not even one of the army survived. It doesn't appear Pharaoh was actually fighting in the army as many Pharaohs would not. They would stand back and watch. So it seems like what happened is the dry land was here. The Israelites crossed. The water converged. And if it came down from the north, it probably pushed all of the Egyptians into this very, very, very deep crevasse just south of this land bridge. That'd be a place I'd love for someone to go and explore if they can get that deep and see if any of this is uh, down there under the silt and mud somewhere. But the Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. The day... That day, the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant, Moses. So now, if you're following along, we've left what we call the Sinai Peninsula, and we're now in the modern-day nation of Saudi Arabia. There's a large mountain over here called Mount Laws, and I believe that is probably the actual Mount Sinai. 
And I believe that because Sinai was still part of Egypt. So crossing from here to here, they'd still be in Egypt. That doesn't really make any sense. This other path makes the most sense, especially when you consider they're now going to wander around the desert and they're going to end up in Moab. And now it makes much more sense that they would have to cross back over the Jordan River into the promised land because they've been out here on the east of it the whole time. And so um, a lot of the wandering probably happened in modern day Saudi Arabia. Also explains why uh, the religion of Islam puts a lot of um, significant religious things happening in the nation of Saudi Arabia. Just makes a lot more sense to me. You can decide if you believe that's what happened or not, if that's correct or not. But to me, that's what makes sense from the text. And in fact, I'm going to quote the Apostle Paul from Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 24, he's making uh, a comparison between Sarah and Hagar, talking about the two covenants, one with Abraham and one with Ishmael. I'm not going to get into what Paul's talking about, but I do want to note something that he says. He's talking about Sarah is sort of from the Jews and from Jerusalem, but Hagar is from, and he says in verse 24, one is from Mount Sinai. And bears children into slavery. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar represents Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Okay, so he's saying that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. Is the Sinai Peninsula, would that have been considered Arabia during Paul's time? It's possible. I can't say for certain that it wasn't, but um, it does appear that it was largely considered part of Egypt really throughout all of history, even when it was under the rule of uh, Persia and um, uh, Rome and uh, other places. So it's, it's difficult to say. But it appears to me that the wilderness is all taking place in northern, northwestern Saudi Arabia. Okay, it's a lot of background, a lot of history. Why are we doing this? Again, I want to remind you, these are real people. These are real things that happen. They happened in real places. You can go to those places and look at them and stand there. It really happened. And if someone says to you, there's just no accounting for it at all, then you know better than that. You know different. You know that actually there's quite a bit of evidence that these things happen exactly as they are stated here in, um, here in the book of Exodus. So um, once they are safe, the next thing that happens in Exodus chapter 15 is the song of Moses. And this is not the first time we've seen a song. We saw a song when um, Eve was given to Adam. We've seen uh, songs of woe from Jacob. And now we see a victory, a song of Moses, a victory song that the Lord has delivered them. And I want to go back and just remind you of Exodus chapter 14, 13 and 14, what Moses says to the people. Because I think these are words that we need to hear about the time that we're in right now, especially when things look like maybe they will get worse in some areas over the next week. I think these are words that need to echo in our ears as we go away from here. Moses says, don't be afraid, stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. We could say, this crisis that is here today, we might have other crises, but this one, one day it'll be over and it'll be in the past. We won't see it anymore. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you and you must be quiet. So no complaining, no lack of faith, but instead wait on the Lord's salvation. See what the Lord is going to do. Wait for the Lord to take um, a great opportunity 
in all of this. North Boulevard has been uh, challenging people to memorize Exodus 15 and verse 2. And I think that's a great verse to go out on. So here's from the Song of Moses, Exodus 15 and verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.